2: Tonight on The Readout. We can debate my, my resume and how I worked with firms
3: such as Goldman Is it debatable or is it just long. false? But, no, is it's it debatable very, no, or, it's or is very it just debatable. I, no, I No, it's not false at all. It's, it's debatable.
2: As prosecutors open an investigation into the lies of Republican Congressman-elect George Santos, Kevin McCarthy is facing a caucus in chaos just six days before the House votes on a new speaker. Meanwhile, serious questions are being raised about where Santos got the money to run his campaign. Also tonight, the death toll is rising after a winter storm dumped more than three feet of snow on Buffalo. We'll check in to see how the city is digging out and getting back up and running. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jonathan Capehart in for Joy Reid. And we begin tonight just six days from the start of the new Congress. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy faces a vote for Speaker of the House next Tuesday with a razor-thin Republican majority and the very real prospect of an open fight over the gavel. It's a predicament underscored by the saga of incoming Republican Congressman George Santos of New York, who again tried to explain away lies about his biography, in an interview with Fox News.
4: Do you have no shame in the people who are now, you're asking to trust you to go and be their voice for them, their families, and their kids in Washington?
2: Tulsi, I can say the same thing about the Democrats and, and the party. The better question is, does Kevin McCarthy have any shame or will he just continue to ignore the admitted fraud about to join his ranks in his desperate pursuit of the speaker's gavel? McCarthy has been silent as Santos has admitted to numerous false claims, likely because Santos has said Republicans must support McCarthy's bid to become speaker. Highlighting the fact that extremists now control this Republican caucus in chaos? Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's emerged as one of Kevin McCarthy's most vocal backers, she defended Santos. She said Republicans should give him the chance to legislate. The same Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was kicked off committees for promoting anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, defends speaking at white nationalist conferences, and according to January 6th committee transcripts released Tuesday, former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson recalled Greene bragging to her and then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows about QAnon supporters, many of them her constituents, coming to Washington that day. Hutchinson revealed, Hutchinson said Green gave Donald Trump a similar spiel, showing a constituent wearing a Q shirt and telling the former president, those are all my people. But with Republicans fighting among themselves at every turn, Kevin McCarthy's quest for power has opened a rift, even among the extremists. Matt Gates, one of five House Republicans who have vowed to vote against McCarthy, told The Daily Caller why.
3: I'm not voting for Kevin McCarthy for Speaker because I think he's just a shill of the establishment. And the reason most of my Republican colleagues are supporting him is because they benefit from the redistribution of lobbyist and special interest money through McCarthy to their campaign accounts.
2: Joining me now, Matthew Dowd, founder of Country Over Party and chief strategist for the Bush-Cheney 2004 presidential campaign. Eugene Scott, national political reporter at The Washington Post. And Dana Milbank, columnist for The Washington Post and author of The De- Deconstruction Destructionists. I'm sorry, Dana. The 25-year crackup of the Republican Party. Thank you all very much coming to The Readout. Eugene, since you're sitting here with me on set, I'm going to start with you. Put the never-Kevin chaos into perspective. Explain why McCarthy has
5: been oh so silent on Santos. Well, primarily because Santos has been vocal about his support for McCarthy. And McCarthy's not in a position where he can afford to lose any votes. He is not at a place right now where he has enough support from his own party to secure the speakership. And so why push back on someone who has already told him that they are going to support him? Mm -hmm. And I just want to
2: point out that, you know, NBC News has reached out to the National Republican Congressional Committee, Leader Kevin Mm -hmm. McCarthy, Whip Steve Scalise. Uh, conference chair Elise Stefanik for their reactions to to Santos admitting embellishments, I call them lies, uh, and calls for his resignation. Um, they, we have not heard, have not received any responses, so just want to put that out there. You know, Matthew, what does it say about the Republican Party that this is where it is right now? That there's a person who's running for speaker who is so desperate to become speaker that you've got a QAnon supporting extremist who is saying everyone must vote for him. And meanwhile, he's staying silent on a guy who has been revealed to be to have lied repeatedly about his own background, staying silent on all of this, all in the hopes of securing the magical two eighteen.
1: Well, I think
6: what we've seen, and as everybody I know on this panel has watched, is they don't hold anybody accountable. Uh, The Republican Party establishment and the Republican Party leaderships hold no one. I mean, they watched Donald Trump, according to The Washington Post, lie some some 30,000 times, never held him accountable in the course of that. I mean, in the end, it's all about power in this. I think Kevin McCarthy recognizes that Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, are probably much closer to the center of where the Republican voters in this country are uh, than any sort of mainstream Republicans that are left in leadership or left in that are left as elected official. Just keep in mind, Jonathan, if you look at almost every single statewide key contest and key races, whether it's Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, nearly every one of those for Republicans The Republican voters nominated election denying conspiracy theory, anti-Democratic candidates, not in five, not in six, in nearly every single race. And so this is a problem. Obviously, it's coming to fruition in this leadership battle, but it's really a problem. Because, the, as I say, the center of the Republican Party, this is where the center of the Republican Party is and the voters are. And that's why people like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, who want to have a linkage with the establishment or some part of the mainstream, mm-hmm. are really out of sync with where Republican primary voters are.
2: And Dana, you know, I know I, I mess up the name of your book. It's called the, the, right. the Destructionists. And you were writing about uh, Newt Gingrich and his revol- Republican revolution uh, at the time. But these folks who are ruling the roost in this current Republican majority are quite some characters. Um, uh, there are six people who are, are opposed to Kevin McCarthy uh, right now being speaker. And Kevin McCarthy can only lose, I think, four of them if he wants to become speaker. But what's interesting here is of those six, two of them requested pardons after January 6th. Andy Biggs and Matt. Oh, and Matt Gates Also in there is Marjorie Taylor Greene, and she's voting for Kevin McCarthy. Um, also, Marjorie Taylor Greene was caught on tape saying that if she had planned. Uh, January sixth, that she would have been successful and her her people would have been armed. I, I, I'm I'm just you've written about Kevin McCarthy and and what's happened with his quest for for the speakership, but put all of this into the historical context. How far has the Republican Party slid from the destructionists of Newt Gingrich to these jokers?
7: Right, it's just been uh, iteration after iteration of this uh, deterioration. So, you know, 1994, uh the Tea Party wave, the Trump wave, uh and so on. You know, I I don't often get to say this, so let me say that I agree uh with Matt Gates. He he called uh Kevin McCarthy, Caven McCarthy, that he'll cave into anything, that he has no ideology. And that of course is exactly uh the issue. He stands for nothing but ambition. Uh, So this is, you know, old-fashioned coalition politics. It used to be, yeah, you know, you'd get some uh, Southerners to uh, mix with some Midwesterners and you'd put things together. Now you've got uh, the insurrectionists, you've got the white nationalists, you've got the QAnon folks, you've got the anti-Semites, and you've got whatever uh, fabulist, what uh, uh, George Santos is. That's your coalition and you have to keep them together. Uh, So, you know, It's showing itself because the first vote is going to be on uh, the Speaker of the House. But if and when Kevin McCarthy is elected, he's going to have no ability to get the second vote through or the third vote through because it's this same coalition of craziness that he has to put together. Uh, And that has been building. uh, The the extremism uh, was built upon in election after election uh, Mm -hmm. when uh, the most extreme candidate won. And this is sort of the inevitable result of
2: that. And Matthew, speaking of, we're looking at on Tuesday the prospect of the first time in since the 1800s, if memory serves, that a speaker will have to will have gone through ballot after ballot after ballot after ballot in order to get the speaker's gavel. And I'm wondering, already, Kevin McCarthy seems weak. How weak and how damaging is that? Not just to the Republican conference, but to to the country. If a speaker McCarthy comes in, he gets the gavel, but it took him five, six, 30 ballots in order to get the gavel.
6: Well, I mean, I'm going to something that Dana just said that I'll just carry on because I think it goes to this conversation, which is for a guy that's completely craven, and, you know, all he wants is to be in, be sit in the speaker's office. That's really fundamentally what he's always wanted and wants. He's never put together a sort of a, a, an effort or a vision of how, how he wants to govern and what he wants to do on behalf of the country that has not interested him. So I think he's like a, you know, a a circus leader that just wants to bring in, you know, the bearded lady and a wall, whatever, and have a series of, Barnum and Bailey performance thing, as long as every morning he can get up and take the black car into the Capitol, go to the speaker's office, take the black car back and leave home. It's they're not going to get anything done. It's going to be a continued round of, as I say, circus acts in the middle of this. And so I, I how long he is able to maintain his ability to sit in that chair, I think, is a question mark because all he needs to do along the way is, as was stated, is lose four or five votes. And they basically say you're done in the midst of this. But I think C- Speaker McCarthy doesn't have some agenda that he's worried about pushing through. He just wants to sit in the chair.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that is plainly apparent. There are a lot of ca- characters involved. And Eugene, I want to focus in on Matt Gates because we now know from former White House um, aide John McEntee, he testified that Matt Gates asked for a pardon over sex trafficking, the sex trafficking investigation, as you see there. Question, how do you know that Congressman Gates asked for a pardon? McEntee, he told me. Question, what can you recall about what he said, McEntee? That they're launching an investigation into him or that there is an investigation into him and he didn't do anything wrong, but they're going to try to make his life hell. And, you know, if the president could give him a pardon, that would be great. I don't know. In order to get a pardon, don't you? you, you have to— say that you're guilty. You have to say that you're guilty. Talk about Matt Gates and why he figures so prominently in all this chaos.
5: Well, uh, as was just mentioned, while McCarthy may not have a clear agenda, Matt Gates does. And he is very consistent with where the base of the GOP is. He's not speaking for himself, regardless of how ambitious he may seem, but he has ideas about where the country should go. And he has very little confidence in Kevin McCarthy's ability to uh, lead it. And so that's why he's been vocal in his support about, you know, for people like Jim Jordan and other people who are really popular with, you know, some of the more extreme figures in the GOP. The same individuals that elevated him not only to uh, Congress but were very much involved in the effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election.
2: Um, Dana, we've got a minute left, but um, I have to. Add, I, I, I want to end on you with this this text from Ralph Norman to Mark Mel- Mark Meadows. I mean, we've talked about it before, but I just think this is. Let's just put this up. This is Ralph Norman, Congressman Mark. In seeing what's happening so quickly and reading about the Dominion lawsuits attempting to stop any meaningful investigation, we are at a point of no return in saving our republic. Our last hope is invoking martial law. Please urge (laughs) the president to do so. Dana, who's martial? And what's this law?
7: (laughs) I had an uncle named Marshall, and he would very much uh, approve of uh, implementing <laughs> martial law. So when we're building this coalition, we have to add in the coalition of the non-spellers. Um, but it shows you that the people who were willing to overthrow democracy have thought it out so thoroughly that they couldn't actually uh, run the whole process through spellcheck before texting it to the uh, chief of staff uh, in the White House. Uh, thankfully, we have the Electoral Count Act, so maybe it'll limit some of last time's craziness, but we can only imagine what they'll come up with next and how they will spell it.
2: Right, and then we didn't even get a chance to to talk about Mark Meadows himself. Time flies when you are having fun and talking about the chaos in the Republican caucus in the House. Dana Milbank, Matthew Dowd, Eugene Scott, thank you all very much for coming to The Readout. And up next in The Readout, perhaps the biggest question still unanswered by George Santos, How did he suddenly become extremely rich? His opponent in the most recent election joins me next.
8: Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org slash future.
2: Tonight, the story of the talented Mr. Santos continues to unravel. The Nassau County District Attorney has launched an investigation into Congressman-elect George Santos. In a statement, Ann Donnelly, a Republican, writes, "Quote the numerous fabrications and inconsistencies associated with Congressman-elect Santos are nothing short of stunning. No one is above the law, and if a crime was committed in this county, we will prosecute it. This comes after Tish James, the New York State Attorney General, already said she was looking into Santos. What is undoubtedly of interest to both is how Santos went from having no assets and a salary of $55,000 to being worth anywhere between $2.6 million to $11 million in the span of two years. I'm sure they would also like to know how he was able to loan his campaign more than $700,000— In his latest interview with the website Semaphore, Santos tried to explain what he did, but failed to explain where the money came from. He claims the money he made was from a company he founded in 2021, which specialized in deal building and specialty consulting for high net worth individuals. During the campaign, Santos accused his opponent of being dishonest. Last night, while on Fox, she was on the other foot.
6: Everybody just wants to push me and call me a liar. Look, I embellished my
4: resume. Congressman Alex Santos, we've given you a lot of time. I think the time that is owed is to the people of New York's third. Uh, It's hard to imagine how they could possibly trust your explanations when you're not really even willing to admit the depth of your deception.
2: You're getting schooled by Tulsi Gabbard. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Richie Torres of New York, and Robert Zimmerman, the Democrat who ran against Congressman-elect George Santos in this year's election. Gentlemen, thank you both very much for coming to the readout. Great to you Torres, to be let me let me start with Thanks. you, Congressman Torres. You put out a, a, a tweet demanding an investigation, and I want to read it. George Santos, a former call center employee, falling behind. On his rent, Lentz's campaign a staggering seven hundred five thousand dollars. Where did all that money come from? The ethics committee must start investigating immediately. I mean, you're the congressman from the Bronx. He's the congressman elect from, from Long Island. Why is this of such concern to you?
4: Well, it's of concern to me because George Santos is a pathological liar who has defrauded the voters of New York State. I mean, he has lied systematically about nearly every aspect of his life, his family heritage, his educational background, his employment history, his ties to historical events like the Holocaust or the Pulse Club massacre. And the breadth and depth of his deception is simply staggering. It's unprecedented. But even worse than his lying, is just possible lawbreaking. He should be the target of multiple investigations. Uh, the House Ethics Committee should investigate him for his likely falsification of official federal documents, we have to send a clear message that if you defraud the voters, you're going to be held accountable. You're going to be even prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Mm-hmm. And, and Robert, you were the, the,
2: the Democratic nominee running against George Santos. And during the campaign, you were trying to get anyone and everyone to listen uh, to the red flags that you were seeing, that the, the evidence that you had, why do you think um, no one paid attention? Why are you not surprised that George Santos is in the hot water he's in?
3: Well, first, I have to thank Congressman Torres for his leadership on this issue. He and his colleagues have been, in fact bringing this to the forefront, where I think we're all grateful, Democrats and Republicans alike, for his leadership. And I would say to you, you know, when you look at this issue, look at this story, it really speaks to the importance of our local media and the need to invest in our local media, whether it was Steve Blank at Blank Slate Media on the North Shore of Nassau County or the North Shore Leader with Grant Lolly or reporters at Newsday. Uh, they did look into these issues and do their best to investigate and explore these issues. Uh, Unfortunately, this race was not considered a high-profile race and a very contentious national midterm election year, very contentious race for governor. Uh, Try as we might, we couldn't get a number of these issues on the radar, and that was uh, very unfortunate. But I think the the important, but it does give an important lesson about why we have to support and invest in our local media. That really is the answer Mm -hmm. for protecting our democracy.
2: And and Robert, though, um, what recourse do you what recourse do you have as a as a citizen of the of the district, but also as the 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 Democratic nominee? Is there anything that can be done that would prevent George Santos from taking the oath in six
3: days? We're having a rally tomorrow in Nassau County at the courthouse, bringing together Democrats and Republicans to make that demand. And we're going to have to keep the public pressure on. I know it's very difficult to block him from being seated, but keeping the pressure on to make sure there is a House ethics committee investigation, making sure that we keep the spotlight, as you pointed out about where he got his money from for, uh, to loan as a campaign $700,000, where, how his income grew to um, between $3.6 and $11 million in two years. We, we all know the deal here. Uh, we all know that George Sanders has been bought. The question is who bought him? And I think it's worth noting, as the Daily Beast reported, that he received over $50,000 in funds from Russian oligarchs, relatives of Russian oligarchs. They didn't find him on Tinder. They didn't pick him out of America's Got Talent. There's some way that connection was made. And I think it's worth looking at his business transactions to see other relationships as well and how he and in Mm -hmm. fact, who actually did business with him to buy him.
2: Uh, Congressman Torres, though, and these are all great points being made. He he should be investigated by the House Ethics Committee. He should be looked into. But with the incoming Republican majority, is there any political will to do all to do all the things we're talking about here? Will anything happen to George Santos as a result of the lies he's told?
4: Well, I have no confidence that the Republican House majority is going to hold him accountable, but George Santos is likely to be the target of multiple investigations. Um, the Republican district attorney from Nassau County opened a criminal investigation into George Santos so that a Republican DA would investigate George Santos is a sign of more investigations to come. And the most important question is, where did all the money come from? You know, As late as May of 2020, he reported a salary of $55,000. Then in 2021 and 2022, he reported earning somewhere between $3.5 and $11.5 million. That is an astronomical growth in his personal wealth that he has not sufficiently explained. As has been noted, he lent his campaign more than $700,000. He claims the money comes from the Devolder organization, which has been shrouded in secrecy. There's no public website. Uh, There's no LinkedIn page. It has been dissolved previously. Uh, and so where there's smoke, there's fire and there needs to be both mm-hmm. a criminal and a civil investigation. Um, Robert, I'm
2: going to a- end with you. Let's say George Santos, for one reason or another, either isn't seated or a new election is held. Would you run again?
3: Well, I've already issued a, I already issued a declaration to George Santos, assuming his name is George Santos, that he should, in fact, because of his lies and the admissions of criminality, he should resign from his seat. And then I would face him head off in a in a face off where I'd run against him. And the the public could decide who's speaking the truth and who can best represent the district. So that's one offer I've made. And frankly, I want to, but I don't envision that happening. I think I don't want to make this about me. I quite frankly, Jonathan, want to keep the focus on George Santos, keep the focus on the urgency for the investigation, because that has to come first. We have to bring Democrats and Republicans together to get that done. When we have a vacancy, believe me, Jonathan, I'll be on the phone with you and discussing it.
2: All right. Oh, I I like a (laughs) pre-booking. Robert Zimmerman, Congressman Richie Torres, thank you both very much for coming to The Readout. And up next on The Readout, a deadly winter storm is creating a lot of heartbreak in Buffalo, New York, but we're also seeing lots of uplifting acts of generosity and heroism. Buffalo City Council President Darius Pridget joins us next.
5: alpha 19 commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console it. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, whoa, my package is here.
6: Fast, reliable,
3: able to power tons of devices inside your home at once.
5: All systems go, you are clear for
3: takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed.
2: The death toll after the devastating winter storm has risen to at least 37 reported deaths in western New York. That's according to Erie County officials who said 29 of the 37 deceased were found in the city of Buffalo. Buffalo was hit with blinding blizzards and freezing rain that at one point left more than 20,000 customers without power. Among reports of the suffering, of forklifts clearing vehicles to let snowplows get through, of Arctic temperatures leaving a nearby restaurant encased in ice, are also stories of hope and survival. Such as a stranger rescuing a disabled man with visible signs of severe frostbite from a snowbank and using a blow dryer to peel off his clothing and cut off his socks. Good Samaritans also include Miles Carter and David Lewis, who helped to reunite an elderly woman with her daughter.
7: They rescued my mother from the JBL apartment. She's here, my mother's disabled, been without lights, gas, food, water. Um, they have her at the house, my house, trying to get her in. <clears throat> Thank you to Rasheed McDuffie, because without him, I've been trying for days to get to my mom. I've been trying. Hi, Lydia. Hi, Mr. Pico. You see these young men? This is amazing. This is God's work.
2: Joining me now is Darius Pridgeon, Buffalo City Council President. President Pridgeon, thank you very much for coming to the readout. Can you give us an update on how the city is, is digging out from this storm?
0: Well, you know, this has been a tough storm and it is uh, a blizzard like we haven't seen. I was here in the blizzard of 77. Um, This rivals that one, I think. Um, At the end of the day, I've been outside all day, uh, just came in really uh, to do this interview. Um, And all of our main streets now have had at least one. All of our streets have had at least one uh, pass of a snowplow. But that may seem like that's OK, but there are still... Thousands of people uh, who cannot get their cars out, um, still people who uh, today our church was delivering groceries in our immediate neighborhood, still people who cannot get to the grocery stores. And in a side of town like uh, the east side of Buffalo, where we really only have one grocery store, the tops, which we had the massacre uh, mm-hmm. some months ago, um, it's very difficult because there's also a driving ban still in effect. Um, So when you take all of that, there's a lot of tempers flaring right now. Um, And but at the end of the day, I've seen Buffalo before in tragedy. And I see him again now uh, rising to the cause.
2: Um, I know that one of the concerns um, now facing Buffalo is something called rapid melt. Why is rapid melt such a concern right now?
0: because you know we've got all of this snow all over the place that snow has to go somewhere and although we have all levels of government coming in right now including our city who are cleaning up you have to put that snow somewhere and the snow you can't put anywhere is still going to be on streets and residential streets. And it has to go somewhere and systems can only handle so much, which means there will probably be backups in basements. There will probably be flooding in some streets. We are told that it won't be massive, but there will be. So that means people who have been without heat, people who have been uh, without some without water, Uh, Some without elect, many, many without electricity that now they're going to have to deal with this. I'll give you an example. At our church, um, we had all of the pipe, not all of the pipe, many of the pipes burst. So now you got that you've got to deal with. And then in Buffalo, a lot of the commercial buildings have flat roofs. So you got feet Ooh. of snow, some buildings, five feet of snow. That snow has the potential to flood out uh, businesses. So it's a huge concern. Um, and just another part of this massive. A blizzard like none other.
2: Yeah, and I'm glad you said that. In the, the less than a minute that we have left, this is a blizzard like none other that Buffalo has seen. And, and Buffalo has seen some blizzards. Like this isn't this isn't new. But what this blizzard shows is it's part of an extreme weather uh, weather events that we have seen around the country. How can Buffalo? Can Buffalo prepare? for the extreme weather events that seem to be happening with even more frequency. Well, I just want to say, since since 77,
0: we haven't had a blizzard of this magnitude. Can we prepare? And if global warming and the change in environment is the reality, we must prepare for a different type of, of weather event. This is not something normal for Buffalo. In, in, in my lifetime, only one time, I'm 58 years old, one time have we seen it like this. So now, if this is mm. about to be our reality, yes, we can prepare, and yes, we will prepare Um, we are not going to make excuses we're just going to do better
2: buffalo city council president darius pridgin thank you very much for coming to the readout and still ahead on the readout joy reed recently spoke with the creator of an amazing new podcast featuring hours of never before heard recordings of nelson mandela discussing everything from politics to prison and that's next
1: This month marks nine years since the passing of Nelson Mandela, the South African freedom fighter president and truly one of history's greatest citizens in a time when we are facing growing threats from domestic extremists motivated by racial and violent ideologies. Mandela's voice is sorely missed. Not only did Mandela unite South Africa in its post-apartheid era, but got nearly the entire world to agree on the moral repugnance of racism. Fortunately for us all, there is a chance to hear from the man himself in never-before-released audio tapes from Rick Stengel, who back in 1993 worked alongside Mandela in the writing of the critically acclaimed memoir and bestseller Long Walk to Freedom. In a new 10-part podcast called Mandela, The Lost Tapes, Stengel features hours of rare recordings of himself and the beloved Nobel Prize winner.
9: You have to recognize that people are produced by the mud in the society in which you live. Mm. And that, therefore, they are human beings. They have got good points. They have got weak points. Your duty is to work with human beings as human beings, not because you think they're angels. Mm. And, uh, therefore, once uh, you know that this man has got this virtue and uh, he has got this weakness, you work with them and you accommodate that weakness. And you try and help him to overcome that weakness.
1: And joining me now is Rick Stengel. Rick, thank you so much for being here. This is exciting. It was fun listening to some of these clips today. As somebody who's written books, I, I understand. I, I think people don't understand that you don't go back and actually listen to the tapes. You, you, re, you write from your transcript. So going back uh, and actually having a chance to listen to him, was there anything that you that you relearned about this man who you came to know so well?
10: Hi, Joy, it's great to be with you. By the way, that last passage that you heard him talking about, he was answering my question about Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U, which is this African idea, uh, it's a causa phrase that uh, he talks about and Archbishop Bishop Tutu talks about, about that we're human beings through other human beings. It's a very thing that was very important to him and that he lived, uh, you know, in, in every way. So, yes, going back and 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 listening to it was was both a wonderful and sometimes painful experience. I mean, I sometimes heard my voice get high with nervousness because I was asking him a hard question. Um, but, you know, the thing about him is I, I felt I heard some things that I hadn't heard before. I felt he was a little lonelier, a little more isolated. I'm much closer to his age now than I was then. Um But I also heard that kind of talk about his youth and how much his upbringing influenced him. Uh, He was raised in a in a royal family. He was raised by the king of the Tembu. Uh, He always identified with those traditional roots. He always called himself a country boy. I I heard that more this time than I did originally.
1: You know, it's interesting, you know, a few years ago when my husband and I went to South Africa and you got to go to see where he was Incarcerated, you really do get the gravity of what happened to him. I mean, these are the indigenous people of South Africa who had their country stolen from them and then made peace with the thieves, right? Uh, And decided to live together with them. Um, You know, Mandela told you, as far as he was concerned, he came back out of incarceration with the same views he had before he went to jail and with the same enthusiasm for political work. But this guy was not like the, the postcard people make of him. He was a militant man for his people. I want to play a couple of sound bites. Here's one on... on wanting to be a symbol for African history and what he did to make that happen. Take a listen.
10: Mandela walked into court that first morning wearing a kaross, a traditional one-shoulder cloak worn by African kings, a beaded necklace, and a shoulder bracelet. Suits and ties were the white man's uniform. Mandela wanted to be the proud symbol of African history.
9: It was uh, to assert myself to go to a white man's court as an African wearing my own uh, outfit and not the one that is desired by the court. Yes. Um. It was an assertion of nationalism, of African nationalism. Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, it's interesting because I think people try to associate him with sort of almost being like a Muppetized version, like they, what they do to Dr. King. <laughs> this was a guy who was militantly for his people. What do you think the magic was that made him able to lead a country with that hard of a history?
10: So, w- one of the things, Joy, that we wanted to do in the podcast was get away from this kind of Sa- Santa Clausification of Nelson Mandela. Yes, he was a, you know, handsome, old, white haired man. But he was the greatest democratic revolutionary in the 20th century. Um, He was the one who in the early in the late 1950s and early 1960s, who decided, you know what, the ANC, which had always been a nonviolent organization, they need to break with that nonviolent past. He said for for men like uh, Gandhi or Martin Luther King, nonviolence was a principle. For me, it was just a tactic. And when that tactic wasn't working, I had to abandon it. He started the armed wing of the ANC called Umkhonto we Sizwe. He was, a, he was a, a, a revolutionary figure. And as you said in, in a, a few minutes ago, people forget, you know, blacks in South Africa were an oppressed majority, not an oppressed minority. There are 85% of the population that were ruled by this uh, diabolical white supremacist philosophy called apartheid, which is maybe the most comprehensive form of racial oppression you know, known in world history and all done, amazingly enough, after World War Two in 1948. That's when the when the Nationalist Party came to power.
1: And then it's amazing that this country has been able to go forward. But one of the things that they did that a lot of countries refuse to do is they tried at least to do truth and reconciliation. They tried to confront the past. Germany's done it. They try to do it. You know, mature countries do it. It's a great lesson for the United States. Uh, The podcast is called Mandela, the Lost Tapes. It's fascinating stuff, guys. You definitely want to check it out. Rick Stengel, thank you so much. Really appreciate you sharing that with us.
2: And up next, an inspiring look back at what turned out to be an incredible year of space exploration and discovery. We'll be right back. When it comes to space exploration, 2022 has been a year of extraordinary and historic accomplishments, from NASA launching Artemis 1 and putting the U.S. on track to return to the moon, to the James Webb Telescope, bringing us spectacular new images of the most distant galaxies ever observed, to the DART mission, crashing a spacecraft into an asteroid on purpose for the first time ever. This year has been one for the science books. NBC's Tom Costello takes a look back at
11: some of these highlights. Three, two, one, boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis one. In a year of triumphs for space exploration, NASA's Artemis moon mission was the headline grabbing finale. A 25-day, 1.4-million-mile test flight of the new Orion spaceship that will one day carry astronauts back to the moon. An 80-mile-high, high-resolution flyover of the moon, a long orbit deeper into space. Orion is right on the money, coming right down the pike. Then a spectacular re-entry with the heat shield hitting 5,000 degrees. That's half the temperature of the sun. And there it is. High over the Pacific, before a gentle parachute drop into the Pacific Ocean.
3: Splashdown.
11: It is the beginning of the new beginning, and that is to explore the heavens. That new beginning will include astronauts on a similar test flight around the moon in 2024. Then a lunar landing in 2025 or 2026 with a crew that includes a woman and a person of color. The first return to the moon since those heady days of Apollo. In, uh,
8: tranquility
3: base here. The Eagle has landed.
11: But NASA is also leaning heavily on private companies. SpaceX now regularly launches both crew and cargo to the ISS. This is the view of Earth from the International Space Station and a simulator at NASA in Houston. Outside the cupola, the blue richness of Earth and the blackness, the deep blackness of space. And right there, the Canada arm, which has reached out to grab an incoming cargo vessel. And SpaceX is now working overtime on its starship that will carry astronauts to the moon. Then perhaps Mars in the late 2030s. Another huge success in 2022, NASA's DART mission. And we have impact. The spacecraft, in time-lapse, traveling at 14,000 miles per hour, slamming into a small asteroid named Dimorphos 7 million miles from Earth and pushing it ever so slightly off its orbit. A critical success if NASA hopes to one day deflect an incoming planet-killing asteroid away from Earth. Now this is a watershed moment for planetary defense and a watershed moment for humanity. But the most visual space achievement in 2022 were those spectacular images from the Deep Space James Webb Telescope. Using infrared cameras, we're now looking at light billions of years old. The creation of the universe, distant stars and galaxies, stunning nebulas, begging the question, are we alone? We could have an answer about whether or not there's life in the universe, which would change everything, right? It would, would change our entire understanding of what we were and who we are in the universe. It's big and beckoning to a new generation of explorers. Tom Costello, NBC News, Houston. NBC's Tom Costello. Thank you.
2: And that's tonight's readout.